Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, folks, it's always great to have you with us. Mike Pomeranz, Mark Sweeney. And our guest is a World Series champ. He's a longtime Kansas City Royal pitcher, the color analyst for the Los Angeles Angels. He's really one of the game's great guys. Mark Gubiza is with us today. And Mark, I think if you're an Angels or a Royals fan, you really know him simply as Gooby. Yeah, and you know what? That nickname uh, really resonates with me, too. Uh, one of the class guys in the game of baseball. I'm so glad he is still continuing doing analyst work for Fox, Fox Sports West, which I think is really important because, Mike, uh, this is a guy that came into the big leagues with the Royals, and he immediately got got thrust into winning a World Series his second year in the big leagues. So amazing stories. You're going to hear about George Brett. You're also going to hear about who impacted his career in so many different ways. Mark, 1984 to 1997, 14 years in the big leagues, 13 of them with the Kansas City Royals. A lot of baseball and wonderful moments to look back on. But what in your mind is your signature moment? What made your career special? Mike, I think it was in 1988, putting it all together and winning 20 games. It was against Seattle. Uh, even if I regress a little bit, the year before in, in 87, you know, I was 13 and 18, and, and I had a good, you know, had a lot of innings pitched. ERA was, well, was below four, which was pretty solid that time. But, you know, going home during the wintertime, everyone was like, what's your record? You know, they don't care about anything else but your record, especially all my friends back home in Philly and out in Kansas City and L.A., all those combined go, what's your record? 13 and 18. What? 13 wins? How many losses? I said, 18. Uh, 13 and 18. So then I go to arbitration. John Sherrill is our general manager who eventually is in now in the Hall of Fame. He goes, and I won the arbitration case, which I was shocked that I was able to do that. And literally walking out of the arbitration, John Sherrill comes up. He goes, hey, you better win 20 games next year. And, I mean, he gives me that look on his face. I'm like, okay, I just lost 18 <laughs> games. I'm going to win 20. I said, well, you know what? Maybe I will. Well, Gooby, 20-game winner, and uh, it, it's interesting because uh, in the baseball circles, a lot of people don't talk about wins as being so important now. It's uh, innings pitched, it's it's strikeouts, but 20-game wins for you personally had a lot to do with it. There has to be a certain mentality that you have to have to win 20 games. Uh, what do you think that is uh, in, in uh, going through those 20-game win seasons? Yeah, Mark, I, you know, I, I was thinking about that for as we're going to do this show today, that I, I was almost like it feels like you were a heavyweight boxer. In other words, if you get knocked down, you get right back up no matter what the scenario was. And talking to, you know, I was one of those guys that literally every day I would run into, like I say, a Tom Seaver, a Don Drysdale or a Steve Carlton. And I would always ask, what is the most important thing to, to, for you guys? And they said it's to be out there in that seventh, eighth and ninth inning. And and I kept thinking, okay, well, how do I get to that point where, you know, you, the mental fatigue doesn't come in. You're physically, you're going to be in, you, you do whatever you have to be in great shape, but it's the physical and mental part you put it together. So I'm like, you know, sometimes I, go, I don't think I got, I'm, I'm going to face Don Manningly the third or fourth time through, which you hear so much nowadays. But back then you go, you know what, I'll fight my way through it. So no matter what the scenario was, I was going to be out there in the eighth and ninth inning. That was my most important thing I had to do. Interesting that you say that because there has to be uh, it has to come from within, but also you have teammates that are, are, are going to push you in that direction. Does someone stick out in your mind uh, that pushed you to finish? Because uh, you had four shutouts, as you mentioned, the last the 20th game was against Seattle, but also eight complete games. 
Yeah, you know, it really goes back to my very first year, Sweeney's, where Hal McRae, our designated hitter, and Lee May. And it, it's, it's a pretty funny story. So I'm pitching at a game. We win, say, six to three. And I go six innings. This is one of my first starts in, in Mater where I actually won a game like that. And they came up to me. And they used to call me Cabana Boy from that old Matt Dillon movie. Hey, Cabana Boy, <laughs> come here. <laughs> like I'm walking over and they go, uh, so what did you think of your game? So I'm thinking, well, I don't know. What what, what, what do I say here? What do I yeah. say? I'm, just, you know, I'm 21 years old. You know, I watched them both. I had all their Slurpee cups and baseball cards. And so what do I say? So I go, uh, good. They go, hey, Cabana Boy, if you ever go out and only go six innings and we give you six runs, you got five days in between. You better go out there and go eight or nine innings or don't come in here at all. So I remember that. I'm like, you know what? Who do I fight? Do I fight these guys? Or do I fight Dick Hauser, our manager? I said, I take my chances with Dick Hauser over these two guys. So from that point forward, in my mind, I was never coming out of a game. And I was going to fight my way through it all the way through. And you think about it, Gooby, uh, you have to have that uh, mentality to get through that. And it's either work ethic, uh, what you put into uh, your offseason workouts, preparing for that start. Uh, but also there's conversations, which I think is interesting for our listeners. Uh, either the pitching coach comes out. You mentioned your manager, Dick Hauser, coming out. Uh, those moments where they're trying to check in with you. Uh, is there any of those moments that stick out in your mind of uh, they're coming out and trying to take the ball from you and you fighting to stay in there and finish that game? Oh, there was a number of times where, whether it was Dick Hauser or the crazy thing after, you know, Dick got sick and he left and passed away and Billy Gardner became our manager. Then the next three managers I had were all teammates from Hal McRae, John Wathen, and Bob Boone. And I had trust in them. So they would literally walk out to the mound to me, look in my eye and say, can you get him? I go, yes, go back to the dugout. That's all I had to say to him. And, then, and you know, because then there was a couple guys that I played with, one being one time to Kevin Aper, who was a great pitcher. So I remember one time when Bob Boone, or when his manager at that point, came out and said, hey, do you think you can get him? And, and, and Kevin Aper goes, well, I'm not 100% sure. Well, then Bob Boone took him out. So then Aper goes, why did he take me out? I go, what did you say? I said, he goes, why? Well, I, I wasn't 100% sure. I said, well, what do you expect me to do? He goes, well, I wasn't 100% sure. I go, well, <laughs> you know what? Lie. Say you're yeah. going to get him out. And, you know, whether it's whether it works out or not, all he wants to see is that look in your eye. And we've seen it, you know, from Kershaw and all these guys over the years now, when a manager comes out and, you, and they ask, how do you feel? Just say, great, go back to the dugout. I'll get him. It's my game. You have a shot. Otherwise, if you say, well, I'm not 100% sure, well, then you got to get out of the game at that point. Except now the manager walks up with his math calculation and goes, says right here, you're not feeling that good. So we're going to make it, we're going to make it change. Hey, Gooby, take us to, uh, to that first year. You'd mentioned, you know, you're 21 years old. You're in the big leagues. If you were drafted in 81, second round pick of the Royals, but in 84, you make the opening day roster. Do you remember who told you and your reaction and, and who you spoke with right away after finding out? Like that was the most bizarre thing because at that point, and Swedes, I don't know about for you. The manager didn't tell you that you made the team. So Brett Saberig and I, you know, we we're you know, roommates in the minor leagues. We, you know, we were buddies. He's 20, I'm 21. So we're like in, I don't know, this is the last day of spring. We see all this luggage in the middle of the locker room. So we're like, oh, let's get our luggage. And we kind of snuck it in underneath everyone else's <laughs> luggage. Saying, hey, no one's going to know it's where we're at. So we run, we hide in the back of the bus. But a team bus going to the airport, they get, hey, no one's going to know where we're even on this bus. So we fly from Fort Myers. We go to Memphis, Tennessee. 
to play a game against our our double A team there, and we're still like hiding around. And we're, we're like sneaking around. We're hiding underneath where the bullpens are. And then finally, Nick Houser comes down. He goes, "What are you two doing?" And we're like, "What? Uh, like we're not here. We're not really here, are we?" <laughs> and he's like, "Hey, you guys made the team." So I remember as we landed in Kansas City, it was misty rain. It still gives me goosebumps because we're riding on the I seventy. We're going behind Royal Stadium at that point now, Kauffman Stadium, where it's kind of a misty rain, and you see the big crown air and you see that royal sign and it's it's misty it's almost like it was a movie so we're driving in and i'm thinking you know what i guess we did make it me and saves are looking at each other i go wow we did make the team and you know at that point there's a lot of veterans on the club we had some young pitching but here we are i think they love the fact we had two young knuckleheads on the team so i remember going in there and i go uh, Mr. Hauser, is there any way I can get to a payphone? You know, he's looking at me. We're in a stadium here, son. I don't know where is a payphone because I had to call my mom and dad. At this point, I still haven't let anybody know that I made the team because I had no idea. Because I'm thinking, okay, I'm really good. But my uncle was in the CIA, so I'm thinking, you know, I'm doing some pretty good CIA work. I snuck on the bus. I snuck my luggage in there. And these guys are all laughing at me, though. Like, you idiot. You made the team. It's not like you're going to sneak on this team and make the roster. You made the team. And it was crazy when they, uh, Announced me the third game of the, of the season. I'm locked up against Burt Blylevin, which was pretty cool. What was that phone call like uh, to your parents? Because I think that's uh, fascinating for every player. Uh, when you feel that that emotion yourself, you want to uh, realize all the most important people in your life. Uh, you had to have that uh, phone call and that that connection. What was that like for you? Yes, we It was crazy because my dad this like me i never ever ever answer the phone when it rings so for whatever reason i'm calling home my dad answers the phone and i can hear you know after a couple seconds hear my mom "Ah," screaming around in the background so i told my dad i said dad i can't believe what's happening he goes what what's on he called me junior even though i'm not a junior (laughs) what's what's going on he goes i made the team and and i I was crazy because i used his exact line he told me that day when the royals put me in the hall of fame he goes son whatever you do never wake up from this dream. And I said, that's, I never will, dad. I promise I never will. So it was crazy because they put me in the Royals Hall of Fame. And what song did they play? Dream On by Aerosmith. And they bring me out a guitar. I'm like, how did they know this story? Because I, I had no idea. And it's all the things unfolding when they put me in the Royals Hall of Fame. But I'll never forget him saying, son, don't ever wake up from this dream. And, and really, I'll be honest with you, I still haven't. Because I'm still part of a game where I was, I'm still shocked that I'm talking about it. I'm still shocked that I played it. Growing up in Philly where we played stickball on a schoolyard with 17 kids every day, you played for three months, that's it. You played football, you played basketball, you did everything else. You just never thought it. And and that's all I ever wanted to do my whole life was to play professional baseball. And like I said, my dad goes, son, you, you never wake up from that dream, and I still have it. You know, not everybody knows who's listening that uh, when you talk about playing those other sports, you were really, really good at them as well. You left a, a scholarship to Duke uh, to play basketball on the table to sign with the Royals. I guess in retrospect, it was genius on your end. But but at the time, did you have any doubts that you were taking the right path? Yeah, I mean, I, I love basketball, Mike, probably even more than baseball, because like I said, playing, hanging out at a schoolyard, we could always, there was enough guys to play a basketball game every single day. There's at least 10 of us. And you have five guys waiting to be able to take out that next team that's going to win. So playing basketball every day, but playing baseball as much as I did. My dad played minor league baseball with the White Sox in the early 50s. And he never, ever talked about it. To the, he's, he's no longer with us, but he never told me anything about it. I just found pictures from people randomly down the road. So I knew it was in my genes. My brother played 
college baseball at, at Westchester State, now Westchester University back at Philly. My other brother was, you know, they were all, everyone was involved in baseball, but I, I love basketball. I just loved going up and down the court, uh, you know, but I knew in my mind, though, that I, I wasn't quite quick enough. I wasn't, I, even though I'm six foot five, and I, you know, I fouled out of almost every game. I was like Kurt Rambis. I literally, <laughs> the top, top dog, and I don't care who it was. Dallas Comagees, who played in the major, in, in the NBA, I played against him. I remember one game getting five fouls, but he was like, by the end of the game, he was dragging. I said, well, you know, I did my part because every time he had the basketball, it was not going to be an easy shot for him. So I knew my limitations on the basketball side, but I wanted that dream of playing baseball more than anything in the world. Who didn't love Kurt Rambis, though, with those goggles? Those were pretty sweet. So, uh, you know, the the hacking part of it, I, there, there's there's some uh, there's some interest in that. Gooby, you come up uh, with the Royals, and you said 21 years old. Uh, your good friend Brett Saberhagen, 20, but he was a reliever coming in. Uh, the listeners don't understand. It's so fast-paced, but there are some thing, things that you have to worry about. Where did you stay and where – like for housing in Kansas city, or did you even go through that? Yeah. So we did, it was crazy. So saves and I you mentioned how young we were. George Brett comes out to us here, George Brett. I mean, he's the legend of, of Kansas city at that moment still is obviously in the hall of fame. He goes, Hey, you too, you're staying with me. So, and I remember going, what I'm staying with George Brett. So yeah, that's, that's, so finally I'm able to go. And I said, Mr. Mr. Brett, can I use your phone? It, to this day, he always jokes around. He goes, why are you calling me Mr. George, Mr. George Brett? He goes, so I called my dad and I go again. He's like, I said, dad, guess where I'm staying? He goes, where are you staying at? Uh, you know, he's probably thinking you staying at a days in or a Ramada in or something. He goes, no, I'm staying with George Brett. He goes, no way. And you can feel, you can hear the phone go down. He drops it. Runs up, what? What? You know, that's my mom said. He stayed at George Brett's house. So then I stayed there for the first month, saved and I. He found us a condo down in, in the Plaza area in Kansas City, set it all up for us, which was fantastic. You know, saves ended up getting married that winter. So then the next year I go back again. I still have no place to go. So I stayed the first month of the year with George once again before he found me a condo. And then at that point he goes, you know what? You're on your own at this point. You, know, <laughs> you leased off me all the food and everything else. So now you're on your own. But I thought it was so cool that, you know what? You always heard the veterans – we're, you know, because they figured, you know what, young guy, I don't want you around. You're kind of going to take maybe a spot or so. It was so great that he literally said, you guys are staying with me. And then at the end of the season, when we made the playoffs in 84, we went back because our lease was up and stayed there as well. So it was incredible that George actually gave us an opportunity to stay there. It's interesting, Gooby. Uh, you know, another left-hander that you came up with, his name's Danny Jackson. And I have a similar story. Uh, it, it's It's like George Brett. But Danny Jackson was in St. Louis when I got called up. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you remember, of course, he went through some ankle injury problems uh, later in his career. And he was back and forth from Kansas City to St. Louis. He said to me one night, and I was shocked because I was in a hotel when I got called up. I got called up in August. And he said, hey, man, um, here's the keys. Here's the keys to my house out in Chesterfield. Mm -hmm. And I want you to stay there. And to me, I was like, uh, first off, this is Danny Jackson. Yeah. And I, I was enamored by his career of, of, of all the stuff that he did. But his unselfishness of being able to make you feel comfortable uh, really amazed me because uh, you have that little boy in you that you realize, man, I, I'm so fortunate to play with all of these stars and I'm in the big leagues. But he's handing over keys to this huge house 
that I got to stay with. And uh, me and my buddy stayed there uh, when he was back and forth from Kansas City. But uh, that unselfishness, much like George Brett did for you, goes a long way because it really molds you as a person. It does because he learned, he watched George Brett do those things, and then he passes it on. By the way, Danny Jackson, one of the most fierce competitors I've ever been. We used to call him Jason from Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> that day he was pitching, don't mess with him. I remember Get one out of the way. In the locker room, him and Bo Jackson were messing around, and they wrestle, and guess who won? <laughs> Danny. Danny Jackson over Bo Jackson. I'm like, no way. Because, I mean, I mean, Danny Jackson's legs were so thick because he was a drop and drive. That's why he always had those ankle injuries and stuff. But his slider and his – he was so competitive. But the thing is, even going back to what you said, he learned from people. That's why, like, you know, so many things, like, I learned from from George and from Dennis Leonard and Paul Splitter, Dan Quisenberry – that I pass on to Kevin Apier. Kevin Apier passed it on to John Lackey, and John Lackey passed it on to Jerry Weaver and Garrett Richards, who you guys all knew down there mm-hmm. in San Diego. All those things that you learn, the good things to be able to be a professional, treat people the right way. And that was the most important thing I always learned, treat people the right way, because we all learn that from our parents. But when you get in, in this crazy environment where everyone's stepping over everybody just to make sure you survive, that you learn to the most important thing is being courteous and nice to people because eventually you're going to pass that on and they're going to pass it on to someone else. What'd you learn from that first start you talked about where you squared off against Burt Blylevin? I believe it was like April of 84. <laughs> first of all, it was great because uh, the night before the, the announcer goes, they're making his debut for the Kansas City Royals. It'll be Mark Gazuba. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, I put my head down. I go, I guess I'm only going to be here for one start. And Dick <laughs> calls up to the PA announcer. He goes, his name is Gubazon, slams the phone. And of course, as a manager, you can never get the phone back in there. And so he's banging, 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 trying to put it back in there. He goes, and making his debut tomorrow night will be Mark Gubazon. So the next day, I mean, the first batter I face is Brett Butler. And it felt like he was at that point, was like an inch off the ground. I'm like, yeah. I can't throw a strike to begin with. Four pitches in a row not even close to the strike zone. So my first batter of the game, walked him. He steals second, goes a third on the ground out, scores on the ground out. So I said, you know, I'm actually breathing at this moment. I'm fine. That's the only run I allowed the entire game. I went six innings, but lo and behold, Burp Wylev, and I still to this day give him grief. He go, he struck out like 13 guys, gave up no runs. So I got my first <laughs> loss right away. I said, thank you. I appreciate that. I got that out of the way. So, But the one thing I noticed, and I always tell everybody, and even during our broadcast, the most important thing for any player, whether you're a hitter or a pitcher, is to breathe. And everybody goes, well, don't you normally do that? I go, no. It's really because the game is so fast at that moment. You can't breathe. Your muscles are so tight that you're not your normal self. So taking that deep breath was the, absolutely the most important thing I've ever explained to anybody else because you just cannot breathe. I'm telling you, it's like, oh, my God, the first bat of the game. I'm like, oh, it's like it was like a 40-foot pitch. I'm like, oh, this is embarrassing. I can hear everyone stands go, this guy's the worst. The way they call him Kazuba. <laughs> Gooby, it, it, you know what's funny is you talk about tight, but I, you know, going back to those days, uh, what was in vogue is tight pants. I mean, Whoa. you, oh, you were rocking those tight pants. And yeah, the- I had to go there, didn't you? <laughs> you know, and then we used to roll. You know, we used to roll up the sleeves. I, you know, it was one of those things. I was such a rebel. I had my hair long. I had the tight pants. But for me, ever into my legs, you had to show we had to show like a minimum of four to six inches of blue on our sock, and I felt like I looked like a complete doofus. With my way my pants were and everything else, I looked like I was like 12 feet tall at that point because I got the blue socks about this. My my uniform was all over the place. We had these <laughs> hand-me-down uniforms from the major leagues. So 
whenever I had a chance to be able to put on the right uniform, I was like, you know what? I think I'm pretty cool right now. So rolling up the sleeves. I had no guns, but I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to do it anyhow. Gooby, you know I had to go there because uh, for our listeners, uh, listen, this is a good-looking guy. I, I mean, uh, 58 years old, and man, uh, he, he's you're still rocking it. Uh, take us to your first win because I think that's important for you. It's a, a, a memento that you probably uh, cherish. Yeah, it was against the Boston Red Sox, and I'm you know going back and I'm looking at the lineup you got. Wade Boggs, Jim Rice, Dwight Evans, you know Rich Gebman, all these guys are on the team, and and I, I lost. I hadn't won a game. I, I think it was like my first game. I lost to Bly Eleven. My second game, I lost to Dave Steve. I went seven, eight innings, gave up one under run, and the next game, Cecil Cooper hits a line drive off my kneecap in the first inning. I thought my career is over with. Uh, you know, I'm pitching good, and I can't get a win. So that game against Boston, everything was locked in. I didn't walk anybody, which, again, it was a shock. And everything was locked in. And it, it was one of those games where, I, you know, it was a hitter, same thing, that I never let what who's coming up in the next inning. All I kept thinking about, this is what I got to do. I'm locked in. I never let – because as a pitcher, when you finish an inning and you sit there in, in that dugout, sometimes when you go – well, I got to get through this inning to be able to get to that ninth inning. And then before long, that next inning, you're getting crushed. So Mm -hmm. everything that moment, for whatever reason, I was locked in that no hitter had a chance against me. And I I just felt really, really good that day. When I finished the game, I remember high-fiving their catcher, their Don Slot, and thinking, I can't believe I I finally did that. And to say I won a game in the majors, never thinking I would ever get there. Uh, You know, because I got hurt in in A-ball, Fort Myers and, and you know they said something about a rotator cuff and I'm like when you hear a rotator cuff you're done as a pitcher starting pitcher so I'm thinking I'm done I'm never gonna do it but dude, I'll get that first win I have the baseball still uh, I still remember everything about it. Jerry you know Jerry Remy was there all these guys were involved in a game and that you run into that I say hey thanks I appreciate it. I, that first win with you guys <laughs> hey so, Gooby man cool. t- you pick up 10 wins that rookie year and uh in addition to the tight pants you get it immortalized in a baseball card which, as all of our guests always say, is pretty darn cool. But I would imagine for you, so close-knit with your family, in particular your mom and dad, uh, seeing that card must have carried some serious meaning to you. Yeah, because yeah, back home in Philly, we played all these games with baseball cards, whether it's in your spikes of, of, of your bicycle. Or we used to play these games called flipsies, where you get the baseball cards and you put them up against the wall and you flip at it, try to knock it down to be able to get a better baseball card. So I remember... When I got my first cards, I go back to all my buddies at the schoolyard. I show them the baseball cards. They're all like, hey, man, this place of flips. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, 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 no. This is my car. We're not messing around with these things. These are going to be in mint condition. They're like, uh, no, we're not. It's on my bike, everything. They were flipping it all over the place. But to say you have a baseball card. And at that point, you remember, there was a bunch of different baseball card companies. Now it's a different thing. But there were so many cool ones. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's somewhere, you know, in a throwing motion or some you know, with the tight pants, of course, and some with the long hair. There's a couple of them. I look like Yamir Yager with the long mullet hair going. Like, everyone goes, hey, will you play for the Pittsburgh Penguins or what? <laughs> That's a great call. I, I like that comp. Uh, Gooby, one of the interesting aspects as a pitcher, and, and you mentioned Bob Boone, uh, who uh, became a manager as well. Um, was there a catcher that sticks out in your mind that you just meshed with? It's that mentality in the combination that I think is fascinating night in and night out when you watch baseball. Yeah, that's a great call, Sweeney. I think Booney was the best, and outside him, Brent Main was really, really good too. You know, he's, he was a fantastic catcher. I think he, he emulated Mike uh, Bob Boone quite a bit. Uh, Brent Main did. So what he did to me, because he goes, your, ba- your pitches move so much. And I go, and he comes out, he goes, 
why don't you get that call, you know, get a call strike? I go, I don't know. He goes, why do you throw the ball at the corner? Because when the ball moves, it's easy for an umpire to call it a ball. Because even if it's going on the corner, it's going to move off and it's going to look like a ball. So it's easy to call a ball. So he said, I'm staying right in the middle of the plate. I'm just going to move my glove here and there. That's all I'm going to do for you every single game. If your baseball stays straight and true, it was going to be hit anyhow. So, but I'm going to get you a lot of strikes. It was amazing. He stayed right in the middle of the plate. And that's all he did was go this and that. And all of a sudden, I went from a guy that walked 120 guys in a season to I was averaging a little over one, you know, 1.6 walks per nine innings. So it came down to learning, learning that. And, and Brent Main was able to do the same thing. He just, I'm staying right in the middle of the plate. I'm going to trust that your pitches will never stay straight. And I remember having that conversation with Garrett Richards, who's now with the Padres. His baseball moves so much. Why would you ever have your catcher set on the corner? Because it's never going to look like a strike. Stay in the middle, have your catcher, and trust movement. That's all you got to do is trust movement. If you do that, you're going to be a lot more successful. Because you know as a hitter, you're not swinging if you're going to be consistently out of the strike zone. Mm -hmm. You're going to center in on the ball on a 2-0 count, middle of the plate, and that's where you're going to do your damage. Is that the kind of thing you want to keep in mind when the nerves are just going crazy on you? Because I think back to your young uh, start to your career as a 21, 22-year-old, you're already in the postseason. Uh, you could contend that some of those games right there, 84, 85, might have been the biggest uh, games of your career. How'd you process all that? What was it like pitching in the postseason at that age for a team like the Kansas City Royals? It came down to, again, like the veterans on our team. When I was named the starter for game six of the ALCS against Toronto, we were down three games to two. I pitched in a relief in game one, you know, and then Hauser brings me in after game five. He goes, you got the ball in game six. I remember going, <gasps> oh. And then as soon as I walked out of his office, and literally I'm at the process of thinking I'm going to have a heart attack, George Brett pulls me in and goes, hey, one of two things, dude. Hey, we're either playing golf the next day or we're playing game seven. And I remember when he said that, all of a sudden it was like a relief in my whole body. I was like so relaxed. I call, of course, again, call my dad. My dad, my uncle, and my American Legion baseball coach say, we're coming up to Toronto to watch you pitch game six. So lo and behold, they – they fly up to Toronto, no place to stay. All three of them are staying in my room. And they're all laying on the ground or somewhere, snoring so loud. I'm sitting there going, I'm trying to process. I, if I pitch bad, we're going home. We're knocked out of the playoffs. And they're snoring, and I'm going, my God, I'm not going to sleep. But I remember one thing that Tom Seaver told me, the most important information he ever told me besides the knee pad story, which I may uh, tell you down the road here, he said, the most important thing for a starting pitcher is not the night before your game. It's the night before the night before because you can sleep well that day. The night before your game, your mind's going to process what you got to do. So you're not going to sleep great. So that night before, I had a great night's sleep. I had like maybe two hours sleep the night before that playoff game because my my dad and my uncle and my, and my American Legion coach were snoring so loud. I was like, <laughs> I don't have enough pillows to throw at them. And I remember being just locked in that day, and I felt so confident that everything was going to turn out all right. It was freezing, too, at old Exhibition Stadium in Toronto. But in my mind, I knew I was going to win that day. Yeah, you take adrenaline into that game, and it, it makes sense. Gooby, you win game six, which was huge, uh, even after the snoring incident. But we uh, <laughs> go through all of this. You win game seven. That takes you to the I-70 series against the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series uh, your youth, you're in the World Series. Take us into the, your, your lens in those uh, moments. It was incredible being, you know, going to St. Louis is a sea of red. And, and you know St. Louis. I mean, you're talking about one of the greatest, if not the greatest, baseball towns 
in America. So being out there on the line and being introduced after watching all these World Series games and, and being just a huge baseball fan and never missing a playoff game or those Saturday afternoon games or even the Monday night game that I used to have on TV back home. So to be there, being announced, and then to play in the Cardinals, we knew in Kansas City it was going to be a sea of blue, but St. Louis, and they still would bring their fans even to Kansas City, but to be part of that and in, in that atmosphere where you knew where you had the Clydesdales going through there and, and everything about St. Louis was absolutely the most incredible thing. Plus, we were lucky enough, you know, I, I don't love the fly, believe me, trust me. So the easy little flight or you had the option of taking a train from St. Louis to Kansas City, so it's a beautiful thing. Uh, you, you look at it, too. It's so interesting. Uh, you didn't pitch in that World Series. And the reason for it, for our listeners, the Kansas City Royals used six pitchers in that whole series. That, to me, is amazing. And it shows the type, the type of work ethic, but uh, the knowledge of the game and how it has evolved even to, to but uh, you guys win that series. Uh, there's a controversial call at first base, but you go on and win that series. Do you remember that celebration? Do you remember popping the champagne with your teammates? Yeah. First going back, even to the amount of pitchers pitched in that, in that series, Steve Farr won a game in the ALCS force and myself, we, I won a game there, but Dick Houser was so good about it. He brought us in and he goes, we're going to use as many left-handed starters as we can because St. Louis is a team beat around built around speed. So with the left-handed pitch, Saves had a great pickoff move as a right-handed pitcher himself, but the rest of the starters lefties. So we were like, you know what? I don't really care what role I have in there. I mean, if you want me to pinch run, I don't even care. If I pitch out of the bullpen, I don't care. So, so we go in there, the pitchers, I mean, our starters, Danny Jackson was incredible. Charlie Liebrandt was great. Uh, you know, Bud Black pitched well and that Saves was the MVP. They pitched so well. I think they hit under 200 as a team that year in the Cardinals. And it, that, that was a good offensive club. So we win game six in that controversial game. And you mentioned that we celebrated that when I remember going home, I was living at the Plaza. The place was, it was Bedlam. It was insanity. Cause you know, it almost felt like we won the world series already. I remember going as we're leaving there, guys, go, Hey, wait a minute, we got game seven tomorrow, but this celebration was just so intense that you almost forgot there was a game seven. But Daryl Motley comes up in that first inning, hits a home run, just goes foul. Next pitch, hits a home run, and then all of a sudden we're scoring a bunch of runs and saves was locked in. That celebration that day, I remember I'm in the bullpen there, and, and the fence was like 18 feet high in that bullpen. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking about climbing up this fence. I got to get in there as quick as possible. And I remember running in. I'm thinking, you know what? That might be the fastest I've ever run in my entire life. And for some reason, some fan was on the field ripped my hat off my head and to this day I have no idea where my hat was from that World Series game and I remember just diving <laughs> in this pile and the celebration because you know going again back to being the young knuckleheads that we are I'm playing air guitar and I'm sliding because the you know the the locker room is so soaked from champagne so they kept encouraging the, the doofus me to go some like I got like a somebody's crutch or something so I'm playing like guitar I'm sliding on my knees to one. And I remember one time going flying right into someone's locker. And I almost broke my neck, I felt like. But they kept <laughs> encouraging me. So I'm sliding back and forth. The celebration was absolutely insane. And at that point, the next day, we have our parade. So that was incredible. Then the very next day, we go see President Reagan in, 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 in the, at the White House. So everything was like, it wasn't like you waited time. So everything was like championship. We won game seven at home. The parade going to the owner of the White House. And I remember going, we're flying to the White House and we had surf and turf. I'm like, here's a guy eating cheesesteaks all his life and hamburgers. I have <laughs> lobster and steak on the plate. I'm thinking, wow, I finally made it here. So this is probably pretty cool. So, and, and all of a sudden when you come back, I go, 
after that, I go, you know what? I don't think I'm ever going to drink a, a sip of champagne in my life after that. But it took me a long time because it had so much. It was a celebration. But then when I went home to Philly, and I remember everyone saying, how was it? I'm like, you know what? And you finally take a step back. I go, that was the most incredible thing ever to be involved in. I remember going to the Phillies game six with my dad in 1980. So to that day, until to this day, it was the most amazing moment because I never went to a game ever in my entire life with my dad. So we go game six and the Phillies have been in existence for a zillion years. They never won a world series. I remember hugging my dad, which we never did. No, it was one of those things father son, you just said, Hey, a handshake. And that's good enough. Yeah. So hug and I, and I go, dad, I'm going to run on the field. He looked down and it was German shepherds and horses and cops. He goes, good, good luck, son. I go, nah, maybe I won't. I'll go back and hang out. But to, to go there from being at that world series with my dad to just five years later to be part of a world series winning team, it was it was incredible to think that I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And, and take us uh, back to uh, when you celebrated and you got the opportunity to celebrate uh, with your parents too. What was that like uh, between you and your father? Oh, it was it was incredible because you know it, my mom could never watch any of my games. She's always lighting candles or going to church and lighting a candle. She couldn't watch a game forever. I mean, I know she didn't even watch that playoff game as well. So knowing what she was doing, what she was going through, it was incredible. But my my dad was. For whatever reason, he was always so calm. I don't know if he was calm on the inside or not, but he was always like, he always gives me this look. I remember because he coached me in high school as one of our pitching coaches. And all he would do when he thought things were going kind of awry for me, just got whistle. And then all of a sudden, it was like, it was like I was a trained dog or something like that. I said, okay, I'm back, I'm back, I'm locked back in. But just to see that and, and to know, you know, obviously, when, when it, as a parent, when like he played minor league baseball, it didn't work out for him to see but to see his son make live his basic part of his dream too had it was pretty cool but i remember him thinking i can't believe you were part of a world series team that was pretty cool gooby our, our identity sometimes uh, uh morphs into our teammates and, and why i say that you've already mentioned a bunch of them uh one guy in particular that you mentioned that i think uh needs to be mentioned even more is a is a teammate named buddy black uh, we all know him because he's man he's the current manager of the colorado rockies but a great man what did he mean to your career he, he he's after you know with dennis leonard and, and dan quisenberry they were part of it they, i always felt they were almost like a, a big brother father figure to me because they had been around for a while but bud black was more contemporary for me so i remember every you know because he had this game i remember watching him in a game he pitched in detroit so the night before, he goes out, and the Royals scored him like seven runs in the first inning, and he couldn't finish the game and get a win. So he was really mad at himself. And, you know, I was pitching the next day, so I couldn't go out and hang out with my friend to, you know, that way we can just have a cold one together and just kind of console it. So the next day, I literally got crushed myself. So he goes, you know what? You're going with me. So we go out to this one little place in, I think it was called Gallagher's or something like that, in Detroit. And he goes, hey, we're going to have one. So and he told me this one thing. So we're having a beer. So he goes, whatever you do, don't ever finish your full beer. So you leave that last sip down there. So technically, you've only had one beer the whole time. So he goes, every time I ever see him, I go, Blackie, let's one more. He goes, just one more. So technically, we only have one beer the whole time. So he brought me in there. He goes, you know what? All you can do is, is, is go out there and compete and give it everything you got that day. Because once the game is over, there's nothing you can do. We can go out and you, you'd be mad at yourself, be upset that's going to carry over to your next start. It's going to continue on from that point forward. But if you can clear your mind from that as quick as possible, there's a good chance you get your great work ethic in between starts and you're going to have a good start the next time out. 
You know what? Uh, and I think this brings a lot of relevance because you talk about having just one with with Buddy Black. I, I mean, let's put relevance to it. Uh, when you're off the field, you really dive into your type of teammates and who they are. Uh, you know, that that bond that you have makes it extra special. It's not about the beers. It's about the conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was one night in particular that uh, you're I, the icon, George Brett of the Royals, brought you and saves out in in Chicago. Can you elaborate on, on that night? Uh, because I think this identifies a lot of, of who you guys are, but who George Brett really is. Yeah, so we go to Rush Street in Chicago. We go to a place called The Lodge, which I'm sure you might have fell oh, yeah. into one or another. So we go there and, you know, and George is in there because he was just, a, you know, wears his jeans. He had the same polo shirts every day. Because I went to his closet one time. We were living there. I go, Hey, you got like 50 pairs of jeans and like 50 white polos and you have like two blue blazers. I said, do you have anything else to wear? He goes, no, it's all I wear. So we're walking in the the lodge, which was a cool place. People, you know, crack open the peanuts, throw the shells on the ground. It's just a cool vibe you have. So I remember going in there going, wow, we've been here a long time. I go, and then he goes, hey, it's fine. We're all, we're all good. I'm like, man, is there ever a last call here? And he goes, no, we're cool. We're cool. So I'm used to last call, like one o'clock, two o'clock, get out of here. That, that's the best yet. So all of a sudden I'm like, you know, I know we're not wearing watches or anything and we don't have, you know, cell phones at that point to let us know what time it is. So finally I go, man, George, we have a day game, you know, it's getaway day. He goes, Hey, don't worry about it. We're cool. And he goes, you know, I said, all right. So then finally we walk outside and it's daylight. I'm like, Oh, what happened here? And I go, what are you doing to me? He goes, are you pitching today? I go, no. And he goes, and saves, are you pitching? Today? He goes, no. So what are you worried about? Don't go back to your room and go to sleep because you only have about a half hour, an hour before we go get on the team bus. Just go shower, get your bag, get it down there. Hey, you'll be fine during the game. I said, you guys are young. I'm thinking, I'm looking, I go, wait a minute now. You have to play today. Once you go out, gets a couple home runs, a couple singles, and I remember going, Hey, George, you're really not a good example for me right now. <laughs> if you're able to do that, that's not a good thing to be able to set the example for you. But there's only one George Brett to be able to do that. But, he, you know, the thing about him, he was always ready to play no matter what. No batting gloves. Uh, you know, he's every day he played the same intense way no matter what. I mean, if you had a fastball, it wasn't getting by him. If you yeah, the l- extremely slow you might have had a chance. Just ask Goose Gossage or anybody else. You couldn't get a fastball by him. Yeah, the legend of George Brett and uh, going to Wrigley Field with peanuts still on his uh, shoes is pretty funny. Yeah. Geez. I still can't believe it. I go, wait a minute. When is last call? He goes, when he says it. it. <laughs> and you know what? When we talk about your time with the Royals, there are billions of stories. And I think sometimes lost in this can be uh, – what those teammates give to you in the way of support that gets you to elevate your game. And I think about the year you pointed out in 1988, uh, which statistically probably was your best year. It was the year you mentioned you had 20 wins, you're 20 and eight. It's also the first year of two back to back that you make the all-star teams. Mm-hmm. The first game in 88 in Cincinnati, the second one in, in Anaheim, coincidentally or not, was where you currently are employed. Uh, which game, if either stands out to you, what are your favorite memories of that time? Uh, I, I still, 88, I was so nervous. I, I couldn't believe I made the all-star team. I remember pitching a game in New York just before that Saturday. I was at that point, you know, nowadays it seems like you're named the all-star game a week before or whatever, but this was literally that Saturday I, I got named to the all-star team. I was so nervous. And, you know, you had like Willie Mays and Lou Brock and all these immortals 
walking around the clubhouses. I remember going out in the outfield in Cincinnati and saying, I don't want to make myself look like a fool. So I was literally, and I love shagging batting practice. I would jump over the wall, slide in all this stuff. I put my back to the back of the wall and acted like I was not there. I was so (laughs) nervous being there that I I didn't really absorb how much fun it was. My parents came there and a few, a few relatives, my aunt and uncle, but it was like, I just, I just wanted to survive the next year in Anaheim. You know, that was the year where Bo Jackson hit the home run and everything else there in the first inning. And then Wade Boggs followed up. I thoroughly enjoyed that one. That was incredible. You know, facing, I actually struck out, Ryan Sandberg, both, both years. And, and that 88 game, it was crazy because we used to go on these Nike trips and Gary Carter was there. He was a, a beautiful man. And at that point he had never struck out in an all-star game. And he had been in like 15 or 16 all-star games that I had no idea. He swung at a slider. I threw it almost went in a dugout probably because he never saw me before. So we're sitting at, together at a table in like Grand Cayman in, in, in you know, just on a Nike trip. And he goes, you know what? I don't like you. I go, Gary, why, man? I, I love you. What's going on? He goes, you know, I never struck out in my entire career at an all-star game except for against you. And I, and I didn't realize that. And then looking back and listen to the, the broadcast of that game, you know, Tim McCarver said that, that it was the only time he had ever struck out in an all-star game. So I thought that was pretty cool. But I know it was because he never saw me before. And I threw a slider. And I'm telling you, what even close to home plate. But it was it was sharp enough that he with two strikes he was going to try to protect. But that was fun, but the, the all-star game and the whole hoopla with Bo Jackson and Bo Nose and everything about that was, that was insane. And to carry that on. So we're uh, after that all-star game and, and Bo at that point I felt was bigger than the Rolling Stones. So going back, I didn't like to fly. So we're flying from LA to New York. We're playing the Yankees open up second half. And I never forget this. We're, in, we're flying back there. We're in first class and the pilot comes out he goes, Hey Bo, can I get your autograph? And, I, and all of a sudden I'm in a, this pouring sweat. I'm like, uh, who's flying this plane? And I'm thinking at the airplane movies with that, that blow up pilots flying the plane. Or what's going on? And I go, Hey, sir. Uh, and he goes, yes. I go, uh, who's flying the plane. He goes, ah, it's, it's, it's on autopilot. There's no one up there. I'm like, what? So then he got his joke with me or something. And the next pilot comes back to him. Like, what are they doing here? They're killing me. And it's all because of Bo. And then we land. And it's like a sea of people come running up the boat. They're like trampling me over just to get the Bo Jackson. But it was a lot of fun to see all that because baseball players and I still to this day think we have to do a way better job of promoting our star players or all our players, especially our star players. But at that moment, the, that Bo knows whole commercial thing going on. That was phenomenal because finally you see a baseball player that was as big as anybody in all the sports. It's fascinating, Gooby, because, uh, you know, this takes you through your career. Now you're a broadcaster with the Angels and you're around Mike Trout. Uh, Bo Jackson, Mike Trout, in that comparison, uh, you give the best perspective because you put your eyes on Mike Trout every single day. But uh, I, I don't think our listeners understand the impact Bo Jackson had on a baseball field, let alone his football career. Can you put that in perspective? Yeah, I mean, he was he was one of the, the few guys in, in all the sports where the wow factor was every single time. You didn't know whether he was going to do something incredible in the field or on the at the plate or throwing a baseball. We know that throw against Harold Reynolds in mm-hmm. Seattle. So, I mean, he would, I mean, this the thing about him was, he, I mean, it's only he, football because I used to go to all the football games too because he gave me sideline passes with the Raiders and and just to watch those guys going, man, this guy's not real. He's not even a human being. That's what I always would joke around. I said, Bo Jackson, 
I said, Bo, you're not a, you're not a human being. I mean, God just threw down this something and it, and that's you. And he just laughed. He goes, you know, whatever. But it, but he always competed so well, and and he, and he wanted to be the best player on the baseball field. And it was not going to be easy because there were so many ups and downs. You know, as a hitter, you're going to strike out. I remember one game against Boston, maybe Roger Clemens, where struck him out three or four times. I don't even know if he fouled the ball off. And then the next day, we're going to New York. He hits three home runs. So he did so many incredible things. And that's why, like, when, when doing games with Mike Trout, everyone goes, who does he remind you of, Trouty? I go, he's a combination of Bo Jackson and George Brett. George Brett being the phenomenal baseball player. Bo Jackson, that wow factor, that phenomenal athlete, just a guy, just a freak of nature where you don't know what he's going to do that day that you better not leave your seat and watch him do something. And we see that enough with Trouty. But Bo, I mean, from one game I remember pitching in Fenway Park, I threw a pitch. It was a man on second base, I think it was. And the ball's hitting the gap in the air. I'm like, oh, all right, where, do I, where am I going to back up? Am I going to go? I mean, it was first and second. So I back up third or I back up home. All of a sudden, I get a, uh, give a courtesy look back, and he's literally flying in the air, and he catches it. And I remember by the third base coach, and, and he looks at me, he goes, did he just catch that? I go, I don't know how he did that. I really don't know how he did that. He goes, that's just not right. He's not a human. Like, I go back, he's not a human being. He's just a, just a freak of nature. You think about it, Gooby, too. Uh, uh, this is interesting. Um, my interaction with Bo Jackson, and this was after – you're talking about the Royals where it, he was making an impact on the game just because of his presence, which I think is amazing. But I go to my first uh, big league spring training and Bo Jackson's there. So I, I'm in awe. I'm in the same locker room. I mean, I, you have those same moments that you had that we talked about before of your first call up and you're looking around and surveying the land. But I go out to field 18, which I'm supposed to be on uh, <laughs> taking batting practice. And I walk by Bo Jackson and he's taking batting practice, and I, I stop and watch. I, I, I wasn't alone. Everyone was watching. But he broke his bat in batting practice, and the ball sails over the batter's eye, and he broke his bat, and he <laughs> went to get another one from the bat boy. But uh, the impact of the wow factor uh, for, for our listeners, it, it was amazing the impact that he had on the game or things that he was just learning on a day-by-day basis Mm -hmm. he was implementing on in a game and he would be a difference maker that's what bo jackson was for me and uh now you're starting to realize that mike trout has that ability too you just got to get him on that main stage that is very important to get that yeah two quick things about bo too it was funny because so his first game he's in oakland so he comes walking in for whatever reason, Saves and I were up in, in the in the clubhouse. So we have a football in there, probably because we knew Bo was coming in there. So <laughs> we throw him a football and he looks up for him and I, I go and I tackle him. I go, man, I just tackled the Heisman Trophy winner. I feel pretty good. <laughs> so he was really chapped. So literally he picked Saves and I up together, like in a bear hug, both of us in the air and our feet are dangling on the off the ground. I'm like, well, that'll be the last time I ever talk with him again. That was just going, oh my God, this guy is strong. And, and then then I think one time you mentioned the crazy stuff. So we're in the Metrodome. And we, we've seen all the crazy stuff he did on TV, but this is during batting practice. He's hitting home run after home run. He go, and somebody goes, why don't you hit left-handed? He goes up and hits left-handed. Three hits in a row, the upper tank hitting left-handed in the Metrodome. I go, my God, this guy is just, like I said, he's not a human being, but he was a, he was a better person than he was for me as a player. And that's the thing. 
He was focused and you don't want to mess with him. And he, and he didn't like fake people. That's what his big thing was. I don't like fake people that just want to be around me because who I'm supposedly are, am, that uh, if, if you were his friend, he was loyal to the bone with you all, all the way through. You know, that's the quirky thing, I think, when fans look at a guy like Mike Trout is in that similar line in this, both are regular guys. The difference might be, though, that Bo was more willing, perhaps, to go along with the marketing and be out there a little bit. What do fans not understand about Mike Trout's personality or dynamic when you hear all that peripheral criticism of, hey, you know what, the league's not marketing stars, as you mentioned, but maybe it's that maybe Mike doesn't want to be out there the same way perhaps Bo did. Well, I think when he comes down to Mike, he's a kid. He really is a kid because when we go He's invited to be a number of Eagle games. We, you know, he's a big you know, fan of the Philadelphia Eagles. So he took me there. He is completely normal, fun, and all these things. Him and if you ever want to get some good stories, go ask Garrett Richards about some of the stuff too. Those two would come in with their, their scooters, going flying through the clubhouse and all this other thing. He's just a fun guy. I think he's almost like that Derek Jeter mold where if you ask him about himself or anything like that, he gives you those bland, yes, no answers. But when you get him, if you ever ask him about you know, going to football games or anything, his family, now with his son Beckham, all these things, the face lights up. He's getting a lot better. I think he realized how important he was when we went through this whole thing in spring training and then summer camp, how important he was for the game of baseball. He, he's opening up a little bit more so, and I think he's getting better at it, that uh, I think he realizes there's faces of the game that need to be out there, and I think he knows that he's the guy that has to do that. You know, Kobe, uh, you transition uh, into talking about Mike Trout on a nightly basis, but also uh, with your partner, Victor Rojas, right now. Uh, there's moments in the game that you you attribute to. This is cool. Uh, it's it's you've always had a great perspective on that for our listeners and and listening to how you analyze a game. Is there one game? Uh, that sticks out in your mind or one moment that you felt you were, uh, it, it was pretty important for you to be a part of? Well, I, I you know, there was a couple of things, even for Mike Trout, the one game where he's going for the hit for the cycle. And I remember, you know, he had his, he had an infield hit showing his speed. He had a triple, which the right center field in, in Anaheim Stadium, there's no way you should get a triple, but his speed was insane. Then the double down the left field line. And I was joking around, I go, Trotty being Trotty, he'll probably hit a home run here. You know, just joking around. And lo and behold, before he even got it out of my mouth, boom, home run the right center field. But I, I, I think probably the most, you know, fun moment. I mean, we've been part of a couple no hitters. Weaver throwing one and Irvin Santana throwing another. Uh, I think when, it, when, when Albert Pujols hit his 600th home run, uh, when he hit a, with a grand slam, being part of his 500th home run too, but you know, the, the criticism for Albert, the 10-year contract, but watching Albert every day, how hard he works every single day to see him do that, hit his 600th career home run. I remember, we, you know, one of our, our uh, stage director, Dean Benson, was in there. He had a, a cell phone just for that moment, whatever was going to happen. I remember just being a fan. And, you know, I'm always, I'm always going to be a baseball fan. And you can, you can, and I love the first guess and present what I think could happen. But that moment when Albert hit that home run, I was I was completely out of my mind because, you know, I'm all about history. Six hundred career home runs. I mean, he's had three thousand hit two thousand RBIs and all those things. But that six hundredth home run there, a grand slam to boot, was was pretty amazing. Hey, Gooby, uh, before we let you go, could you put something to bed for us once and for all? Settle one argument. 
<laughs> they were extra, they were extra tight pads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm sorry Mark ever planted the seed and they had scarred you for life. You know, you talked about this uh, for a long time. We're all familiar with that. And, and for folks who aren't familiar with that accent, that is a, a Philly accent, yeah. if ever there was one. So tell us, just put it to bed, will you? Who's, who's the best cheesesteak? Who makes the best one uh, in Philadelphia? Delisandro's. I mean, even the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon went in there. It's funny because I don't know if you ever been to New York where you went to the, that, that the soup kitchen. Oh yeah, uh, you know that guy, the so soup, Nazi. soup Nazi. Well, if you go to Delisandro's and you're not prepared to say I want a, a Philly cheesesteak with sauce and onions, if you're not ready, oh, which I have, it's like you're crushed in there because <laughs> it's a small little environment and everyone knows exactly what it is, and, and the, the steaks are like piled up high. And it's not the whiz cheese; it's provolone cheese, and it's the Amoroso roll. So yes, that that's my all-time favorite. It's, and it's it's walkable from my house. And it's funny because Mike Sosha the other day texted me, goes, "Hey, I went to Del Sandro's the other day, the other day." He goes, "You know what? It is incredible. My kids, when we go back there, they they have to have it. Uh, it is it's absolutely the best." What's the what's the Gooby order? Give us your order. Yeah, I go Philly cheese. I don't, you know, I'm not a bit, you know, anybody who knows me, I am the most plain eater ever. So I, I, I'm not a foodie by any stretch of my day. So I go, chick, I mean, go most times I have a chicken cheesesteak now with just sauce. And the onions and like mushrooms are like my kryptonite. Mushrooms and all those things are my kryptonite. But just with the, the cheese and the sauce and, and whether it's steak or, or chicken, that's my go-to every time. Provolone or whiz? Prevalone, gotta be Prevalone, man. No, 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 Wiz. I remember hey. I did, we did an opening from G- Gino's one time, and I'm in there like with the spatula trying to flip it. And he's like, hey, you gotta get underneath there. Like, I'm like, I remember Della Sanders, it's all chopped up. So I had to get Ooh. underneath there and flip it over. I, and I didn't wanna mess with him in there. So I made sure I did that. <laughs> but I saw the Wiz, I'm like, uh, Wiz is fine. I'm not gonna, you know, crush it, but Prevalone is, is the way to go. All right. Well, if you're out there listening, you're in the Philadelphia area, you better take Mark Gubas's advice. The guy knows no wrong other than the quirk of a chicken cheesesteak, but that's for another uh, podcast. Oh, I love those. I'm trying to, I try to be healthy every blue movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's a reach to throw a piece of lettuce on that thing. He's trying to get into those tight pants again. <laughs> Gooby is always, man. You're killing me, man. You're killing me. Oh, I love you, buddy. You know that. Great to catch up with you, Mark, so much. So I really appreciate the time. I appreciate it, guys. This is awesome, man. I hope I didn't make too much of a fool out of myself, which I usually do. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.